The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are going to look at uh, Luke 12. Um, if you have a Bible, that's great. I will be reading verse from 35 to 58. If not, um, those will all be on the screen as well. One of the things that we do as a church as well, if you have questions uh, during the sermon, um, those actually come straight to my phone. You can text them. There's a number on all the slides. And uh, you can ask a question the old-fashioned way. Uh, the way we'll do that this morning is we'll do the questions uh, after uh, we do our baptisms. So, all right, now that I've got all that stuff said, let's turn to Luke 15 or 12, and I will start starting at 35. So this is in... Jesus has been addressing um, the Pharisees or the Jewish uh, rabbis and teachers of the age uh, of, the, of the day and um, speaking of what it means to be a disciple. And so here we have, starting in verse 35, he says to us, Stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may, be, may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants who find their master awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise ma manager, whom his master will set over his household and will give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed, I'm sorry, I, with the sound folks, I'm getting some feedback up here. I, I keep, can we, I, I don't know if you can hear that. It's going to drive me nuts. <laughs> I have this, like, small ringing in my ear. Are we all okay? We're cool? Okay. Um, Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with, his unfaith with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will and did it not great, uh, but did not get ready or according to his will will receive a severe beating, but the one who did not know, he will, deser he will deserve uh, and did... Sorry, I got distracted. Uh, and the one who did not know and did, not, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. And everyone to whom much is given of him much will be required, and from him to whom they've entrusted much, they will be demanded more. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it is already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and, what, and, what, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you, know, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather a division. From now on, that... In one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. 
they will be divided, father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Okay. Let's pray. God, as we look at these words, we ask that you would help us. Would you help us to see the simplicity amidst what feels like a very complex passage or difficult passage? Would you difficult passage? Would you help us to see the simplicity of what it means to be a disciple, be someone who follows Jesus? So, in His name, we pray. Amen. Um, I want to just jump right into the passage. I realize this is a long passage. There's a lot going on, um, and some of that's just in terms of just time factor. With uh, we want to have our baptisms and a. Um, and all of the logistics that require there. But also, I want to jump into the simplicity of what this passage is aiming at, because it, there's a lot of things going on, right? And it can kind of feel, um, have you ever been in an, I don't assume that any of you have been in arguments, but maybe you have, and there's been uh, arguments where you're like, halfway through, you're like, what are we even arguing about? <laughs> you're like, I don't know what exactly is going on right now. Um, I was against the change in this or whatever, and now you've argued me into agreeing with you, but I don't want to admit that I'm agreeing with you, and so now I'm arguing against you just to do it, to save face. You lose your place in the argument. And I think we can kind of feel that with this passage, because honestly, we're halfway in the, chapter, or we're in the latter half of chapter 12 of uh, Jesus kind of rebuking the Pharisees, and we're like, we started with Mary and Martha in prayer back in chapter 11, and demons, and then false teachers, and now this, like, where are we at in this whole development of Jesus's diatribe, you might call it. But I think in the middle of this, um, Jesus is ending with these parables, and these parables, amidst their dynamics, speak to us about the simplicity of what Jesus is calling us to. When Jesus speaks to us, he speaks to us as people who are... uh, people who struggle in life, people who have lots of things pulling at our attention. And in the middle of these parables, he's calling us to a simplicity. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. So here's what I want to say the main point is. Again, if you have any questions or you want to disagree, that's totally fine. Uh, You can do that with a Q&A at the bottom. The simplicity of Jesus' baptism calls us to live in the simplicity of discipleship. I think in the middle of this, while there's many parables going on here, a couple parables going on here, and certainly some startling statements about Jesus coming to bring fire on the earth or division, there is a simplicity of what Jesus is aiming at. Jesus is aiming at drawing our attention back to him and telling us what it means to wait on him. That's kind of really at the heart of what's going on here. So we're going we're gonna to take a stab at looking at these parables all in one shot and under that heading, uh, we will look at the simplicity of discipleship. So that's what we're going to start out looking at here in these parables. So in 35 to 48, should we read these again, or should I just kind of summarize them? What do you guys, congregational vote? Just summarize? I got got C, all of the above, summarize? All right, so first parable, we have Jesus basically saying, Look, if you're in the groomsmen party at a wedding, what is your job? 
Like actually not being, I, I love being at a wedding party where I'm not, um, what, what's the head groom's Best man, right? I'm never somebody's best man, that's why I don't know it. I'm either the one officiating or I'm just some, you know, doofus in a suit down the line, right? What's your job? It's great. I just show up, I look nice, and I wait around. And then I stand in pictures and I just kind of, hey, how's it going? That's your job as you wait in a, in a wedding party. That's basically what Jesus is saying is your discipleship, when it means to follow Jesus, you're to be that groomsman or the, uh, the bridesmaid just waiting. You're waiting for him to show up. Now, while your job is simple, that doesn't mean that you can just kind of like do whatever you want. Like, I'm going to go to Walmart, I'm going to go to Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, groom showed up, you weren't there, you're, you neglected your job, right? You're supposed to be there when he shows up. You're not there because you're getting your extra large coffee at Dunkin' Donuts. Shows up, wedding has to move on, you miss out. Like that, that's kind of the picture that Jesus is painting here. Second parable, it's a, much the same idea, right? He says he's aiming at faithfulness. You know, first parable is kind of around this idea of waiting. Second one is around faithfulness, right? You have this manager of the servants in the house, and he says basically a similar idea. Like the boss goes away to do whatever the boss does, he leaves you in charge to make sure that the stuff gets done. Now, you can abuse that power, and in this parable, he talks about beating or getting drunk or you know, getting all these kind of excesses of ways in which you neglect to do what you're paid to do. And the parable here is just to say, your job is to be faithful to what you're called to do, to do what you're supposed to do. That, that's what these parables are about. Now, I think it's reasonable in these parables to ask, okay, so what does it mean then for us as disciples to wait? What is this waiting or faithfulness? Like, I get the idea, I get the picture of Jesus, but what are the details here? I think to remind us, Luke is painting a picture of what it means for Jesus to be who he is and for us to be disciples of Jesus. Back in Luke chapter 6, we get what's Luke's version of kind of the Sermon on the Mount type stuff called the Sermon on the Plain. And that is really the program, you might say, of what it means to be a disciple. It captures what Jesus says, here's the core of what it means to follow me, to be like me. So we have in the middle of that parable, we have uh, in that section, we have this, and I think this is what Jesus is aiming at amidst all the other things he says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Right, the one who strikes you on the cheek, right? That's again referenced in this parable. Offer the other also, and for the one who strikes away your clo- um, who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish others would do to you, do so to them. Right? That that first line: love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. At least in my understanding of how Luke is developing his picture of what it means to follow Jesus, this is what it means. This is the heart of what it means to follow Jesus, right? Because you'll notice his commands in the parables are wait and be faithful. Be faithful to, to what? Wait with what? I think Jesus is calling back to these dynamics of some, the, to be a disciple. It's not a complex program, right? It's not a memorization of 
big systems and structures and schemes and here's the ins and outs. It's do these things. But we want to remember these are do these things from Jesus. Not just, it's not just me standing up there saying, here's what it means to follow Jesus. This is Jesus saying these words. Here's what it means to be faithful. In the middle of this, I think we have to remember that when Jesus says these things to us, he has in mind the life of somebody who will ultimately, for himself, die because he's doing these things. There is a death by experience, a constant experience of dying and rising again within these things, where if you truly take these commands seriously, sorry, can we go, there we go, yeah, to love your enemies, there is a death that must happen in that. It feels like you're losing all the time. To love your enemy, I think all of us can kind of like shrug off loving people that don't deserve it like once or twice. But Jesus is talking about a life that embodies this in a constant, repeated motion. Loving people that have really done you wrong. Doing good for those who hate you. I don't know who those people are for you. I don't think we need to define that, certainly not in a public context, <laughs> where any of you are, could be liable for what you say. But you think about hating, like not just kind of like, ah, I don't really care for Jacob, he's not my cup of tea, but people who are like, no, like against you, doing good for them. Not just kind of like thinking positively about them, doing good. Blessing those who curse you, right? And not just in traffic, right? And pray for those who abuse you. Praying for God's goodness for those who manipulate and abuse you. Doing this constantly, regularly over time, it very easily could feel unjust, unfair. What am I doing this for? This regular, like, it feels like I'm just losing all the time. Right? I don't know if you guys remember that line from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy where Star-Lord's like, man, when I stand up and look at us, I see a bunch of losers. And he's like, not people who are like losers, like people who have lost stuff. Like, that's what he means by that, right? That's, I think, this sense of like, if you are faithfully following Jesus, waiting when you're constantly losing, being faithful when you're constantly missing out or dying to yourself, that's when these parables begin to kind of like, once or twice, okay. Three times, uh, a lifetime of discipleship, 20, 50, 1,000, that gets hard. So that's why I think Jesus goes where he goes next. So we've looked at our simple discipleship. It's not a complex program. We go next to 49 to 53, his simple division. I want to read this for us because I think this is, this is kind of where the meat of the passage, the drama of the passage orbits. Verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, rather division. 
For from now on, one house, there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is not exactly like the type of Jesus that you would expect from what he said earlier, right? Where he's, I've come to bring peace and unity. Yet here's Jesus saying, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and that baptism causes division. Again, we're at this kind of transition point in the Gospel of Luke, but in the background of Jesus, it's clear that he has said, look, I have come to set my face towards Jerusalem. In the middle of chapter 9, he says, I am setting my face towards Jerusalem. I know where I'm going. My mission at this point, I've taught you what I need to teach you about what it means to follow me, and I'm setting my face to go accomplish what I've taught you. In the background of Jesus' mind, kind of coming out, bubbling out from the bottom here, is this baptism. What is this baptism that Jesus is describing? Baptism is a word, like, I know that we have the baptismal thing here, right? But baptism, this word, has this image of, it is all-encompassing. It is overwhelming. It is something, it is an experience that is all-consuming. And so when Jesus thinks, how do I help my disciples wait? How do I help my disciples be faithful? In his mind, it immediately goes to, I must do something that is all-consuming, that he says here, right? I have a baptism that to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Like, have you ever had something where you're just like, I just, I can't wait to get this done. It's bothering me so much. It's, you know, like, whether it's winterizing your garage for right now, or whether it's this horrible project that you have to get done. Jesus has in mind, I have a baptism, I have something that's overwhelming that must happen in order for my disciples to be faithful. Baptism is this picture of something that is overwhelming. So Jesus' baptism, when he comes to the cross, is this overwhelming experience. But the reason he uses baptism language, like why does he, why doesn't he say my mission? Right, when Jesus says baptism, he has in mind this whole history of water in the Old Testament. I'm not sure how familiar you are with this, but I'll just do a, a, this whole, like, in the first three-fifths of the Bible, we're going to just do like a big flyover real quick. The Bible begins with water, and the water is called the waters of chaos. And out of the waters of chaos, God brings out the Garden of Eden order. Again, God's people sin, they fall away from him, they get captured and are enslaved in the land of Egypt. God takes his people, and he wants to bring them into his promised land. So what does he do? He cuts the waters of the, Red, of, of the Red Sea, makes dry land, and leads his people out through the dry land in the midst of the waters into his promised land. But those waters fall over and destroy God's enemies. They are the waters of judgment. Before that, I skipped over this, you have Noah. God plans to judge the, war, the world. And how does he save his people? He provides a boat 
to lead them and protect them amidst these waters of judgment that consume everything else. You have this happening over and over again of God saying, I'm going to deliver you out of the waters of judgment into the land of life. See, waters in the Old Testament represent chaos, death, destruction, judgment. And God says, my promise to you is that I will be with you and lead you through those, through those waters into my presence, and I will be with you in the waters of judgment myself. So that when we arrive at the end of the Bible, there's this little random line in the book of Revelation that says, and the waters are no more. It's not because now there's no Indian Ocean or Pacific Ocean. It's because the chaos, the judgment that we deserve, that is rightfully ours, God has finally, at the end of the Bible, led us through those waters to be delivered into peace and his presence. So when Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, he's not just kind of saying like, hey, here's a great image. He is pulling from this whole storyline in the Bible so that he says to us, I must accomplish a specific, unique baptism of going through the waters of judgment and delivering you that only God can do himself. You'll notice when Noah is saved from the waters and when God's people are saved from through the Red Sea, God's not just kind of telling them what to do at a distance. God is with them in the midst of it. So in the cross, Jesus walks through as the Son of God. Jesus walks through as the new Adam, the one who is the embodiment of all of God and all of our humanity and takes both the judgment of God with us through those waters on the cross and delivers us into the life of peace and grace with him after his resurrection. So then it comes to baptism when we practice it this morning. Romans 6 is in our mind. Paul says to us, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. When we baptize Jan and Al this morning, they are identifying with the death of Christ. They are being consumed in the water. They are being raised up into a picture of this newness of life. So this isn't just kind of like a religious thing where we just kind of like do it to do it, right? There isn't anything also like magical about this either. Like if we were to dump this over or the leak that we have in our tub, like it's not like magic water that's like being spilled around. <laughs> this is a picture. This is a drama. Like any of you who go to experience a, a museum with artwork or you go to the theater to see a production or you go to a movie to see a movie or film, whatever cinema people are calling them these days, you see these movies, you experience this art, and it changes you. It's a drama that draws something out of you. 
that it helps you renew these commitments to goodness and beauty and life and newness. This, as well as the Lord's Supper, are simple ways that the Lord has equipped us to be able to say, this big drama of Jesus destroying the power of death and sin and rising to new life, right? None of us, as far as I'm aware, were in Jerusalem or Palestine 2,000 years ago to see this. But these are ways in which we experience afresh the newness of that conquering of death, the promise and fulfillment of life for us. So that the division that Jesus brings is not us versus them, Republican, Democrat, left-wing, right-wing. It's certainly not uh, left-hand writers, right-hand writers. Any other ways that we can divide people, men or women, it is those who are in death and those who are in life. So when we practice baptism, we are renewing, refreshing, reminding, re-engaging this grace of what God has accomplished for us. That's why we do baptism. right? It's not something that you do for yourself. It's something that God has done for you. When we baptize, it is a submission to God's grace and a rising to life in Him afresh. I want to end. I want to circle back to verse 37 in this passage. We talked about Jesus in this, and we kind of skimmed over the parables, I understand. But there's something profound that we missed or we skipped over. We see his profound reward in this discipleship. Verse 37, did you notice this? Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And then this. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. I want you to understand, in the ancient world especially, like there was no undercover boss 2,000 years ago. Right? Have you ever watched this undercover boss where you're like, the CEO comes and you know he's the works behind the counter at McDonald's or wherever it is, and like, oh my gosh, like this I never knew that my company was like this before. You know, there was no undercover boss 2,000 years ago. The the boss, the you know the Godfather the head of the house, whatever you want to call him, the head cheese, he was at one end of the spectrum. And the servants who served at table and did latrine duties and all that stuff were the bottom of the spectrum. And ne'er did the two meet. You did your job. The top top dog did his job. He never switched positions. Uncalled, uh, unheard of. Revolutionary. And yet here Jesus is saying... I'm not merely the head cheese to fill out this parable a little bit more. I am the king of the universe. And he's saying, if you are my disciple and you follow me, at the end of the age, when this whole story gets wrapped up and we go to the next book of reality, whatever that is, the new heavens and the new earth, when this whole thing wraps up, I myself will come to the door knock and say to my servants you sit at table and he will put on the robe of a waiter and he on hand and knee will serve you 
I just find this. This is one of those moments where you, if you begin to understand the picture of the Bible, it should catch your breath of like, what? You're G- you are, bro, everybody knows the name Jesus. Like you got John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and Jesus, right? <laughs> you got Jesus up there, and he's going to, I would be willing to bet that Paul McCartney would not even know my name. <laughs> just a wild guess. Jesus knows my name. And Jesus says, I will come and serve you. Steak and wine, whatever it is, I don't know. End of the age food. Here is my offer. The reward, it's not, who cares about Jesus particularly serving you? The reward is that he's yours. You get Jesus. You get this man who is the embodiment of all of God's being and heart for you and all of your struggles and humanity and the, the, just the difficulty of life, all of that in one who perfectly understands you, he himself wants to go out to dinner. So I don't know where your life is right now, where your struggles are, I think in this passage what we have is a picture of simple discipleship, the pathway to get there, and the reward at the end. And you will find in the midst of each of those phases is Jesus himself. Isn't that what we want? I think that at the heart of this passage, Jesus is just simply saying, I want you and me to be together. And I'd I want all of what comes with the package of you. And I want you to have all of what's with me. So at the heart of this passage, we find the simplicity of Jesus' baptism calling us to live in the simplicity of our discipleship. Let's pray. God, as we consider Jesus and all that he is for us, I pray that we would have a fresh experience of knowing him being reminded that we are just simply to be faithful disciples. And at the end of the age, we will receive Jesus. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.